You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. On Wednesday, August 9th, U.S. President Joe Biden declared a national emergency. It wasn't about the planet's climate crisis and the massive fires that are burning through Alaska, Texas, Idaho, Oregon, and most recently, Hawaii. It wasn't about the 400 mass shootings so far this year that have resulted in the deaths of 34,000 Americans. It was this: certain United States investments may accelerate and increase the success of the development of sensitive technologies and products in countries that develop them to counter United States and allied capabilities. I therefore find that advancement by countries of concern in sensitive technologies and products critical for the military, intelligence, surveillance, or cyber-enabled capabilities of such countries constitutes an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States, which has its source in whole or substantial part outside the United States. And that certain United States investments risk exacerbating this threat. I hereby declare a national emergency to deal with this threat. That's an excerpt from the executive order issued by Joe Biden. China isn't actually named in the text of that order. You have to read through 2,460 words to the annex to find three names: the People's Republic of China. The Special Administrative Region of Macau and the Special Administrative Region of Hong Kong. The announcement came exactly one year to the day after Biden signed into law the Chips and Science Act, which was actually two separate pieces of legislation directing 280 billion U.S. dollars for research and development into semiconductor manufacturing over the next 10 years. To give you an idea of how much money that is, that's equivalent to the entire 13 years worth of the NASA Apollo program, which landed astronauts on the moon on six different missions. It's roughly 55 billion U.S. dollars more than China is spending for its entire defense budget for the year 2023. But the Chips Act wasn't just about pouring American taxpayer money into building advanced chips. It also banned American companies from receiving chip funding to build any kind of leading-edge chip factories in China for 10 years. This new executive order further bans any investment of American money into areas the Biden administration says China can adapt for use in weapons. That's artificial intelligence, quantum computers, and once again, semiconductors. Hello and welcome to a special Inside China series. We're analyzing the Biden administration's continuing efforts to limit China's technological developments with a number of choke points, from export controls to sanctions, and now a ban on venture capital investments. My name is Jasmine Se, and my name is Jared Watt. We're talking to you from our studios here at the South China Morning Post newsroom in Hong Kong. And before we get going, a special note for you, our dear listener. As we said back in January 2020, at the start of more than two years of weekly podcasts covering the pandemic, this is a developing story. Just as we sat down to record this episode, came the news that the American tech giant Intel had failed to merge with a company based in Israel called Tower Semiconductor. All because Chinese regulators failed to give an approval, but there's more to it than that. 
It's part of what our colleagues are seeing as one of the methods Beijing is using to retaliate on these escalating US sanctions. And as these new developments arise, we remind you that you'll see the latest news updates and the best analysis at scmp.com. But right now, we're going to patch you into our newsrooms in Washington, D.C. and in Beijing to find out more about what just happened, what's being talked about, and what happens next for the governments of Joe Biden and Xi Jinping. It's a very special occasion to have Rob Delaney, our North America Bureau Chief, on the line from Washington, D.C., and our China Diplomacy Specialist Reporter, Kinling Lo, on the line from Beijing. Good morning to you both. Good morning, Jasmine. It's great to be here. Hi. Great to see you again. Rob, let's start with the latest escalation in the Biden administration's tech war and the arrival of a new slogan, small yard, high fence. What exactly does this mean? Yeah, so the Biden executive order is something that we have been waiting for for nearly a year. Uh, Lots of reporting or misreporting, should we say, that the executive order was imminent and expected, uh, you know, within the next day or two. And those reports started coming out last year. So I, I think what we can take away from this, the idea of the small yard and the high fence is that the Biden administration had obviously spent a long time trying to figure out how they can manage to implement or to lay out this new executive order in a way that doesn't completely undermine all of the diplomacy that they had been trying to rebuild. If you remember, Xi Jinping met with Joe Biden at APEC uh, last year in November and Things looked like they would start uh, what initially the term was they were building a floor under the bilateral relationship. Later, they call it guardrails. And then, of course, the uh, Secretary of State Anthony Blinken's visit to Beijing, which was uh, canceled right after the Chinese balloon floated over the U.S. and kind of blew up a lot of the goodwill that had been developing. So the efforts eventually got back on track. We saw that Blinken did eventually meet with Wang Yi, and then we had uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in Beijing. So I think throughout all of this, obviously this executive order was, the Biden administration has for quite a long time had every intention of putting this order out, but they were trying to maintain some semblance of connection, of engagement with Beijing. So The answer was really to come up with this idea that the area of technology that would be off limits in terms of U.S. investors helping China at all or joint investments was going to be as small as possible. So there we have the the small yard. With a small yard, it's easier to build a high fence because you don't have as much area to cover. And so with a small area to cover, it's just the, the kind of sentinels that you have to lay out in order to make sure that this area is not getting breached uh, is stronger. So if that helps explain why we have the small yard and high fence. And I guess I would also point out that in all of the diplomacy that we've seen ever since things got back on track after the balloon incident, it's very clear that Blinken and uh, Yellen and all the other engagements that we've had between the two sides, a big component of that has been the U.S. side saying, hey, we're coming out with this order. This is happening. But we're doing everything we can to really limit the extent of damage. 
we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we just don't completely decouple, that that we don't sever the large trade and, and investment flows that we have between the two countries. So that's pretty much the idea between the, uh, the small yard high fence. And Kinling, can I ask you, how would you characterize the response from Beijing after this? Is this move being seen as de-risking, decoupling, or active destabilizing of China's economy? I guess Beijing's response would be classified as a more typical, like a repeated one, just like what it would say to any other U.S. moves that would have an economic impact or any impact basically on China's tech development that would be seen by Beijing as very targeted against Chinese companies and even against the Chinese government in order to stop or to prohibit their development in high-tech development uh, in the industry. So they were calling the U.S. as defying their own principles of fair competition and, you know, destroying international trade orders, all, all these accusations we've heard before. And essentially that's because, like Rob said, the discussions on any further pressure on Beijing and producing their own cutting edge technology in some of the areas included in the executive order have been in discussions for too long now. So they've definitely seen that coming. Therefore, I'd say the response would just be what Beijing sees as necessary to step up and, and call it out. But in reality, from my understanding, ever since the executive order was in discussion or has been brought up in light in the media, which would be I think over a year by now, people in the market would be prepared for it. People in venture capital, people in private equity and companies that have investments in Chinese tech companies, in semiconductors, AI, supercomputing, they would probably have been looking into what they would do in response to what they would see as an, an executive order that would be expected to come. And even if it's not an executive order in these areas. I mean, these areas have become sensitive enough through other either sanction or export controls. So I'd say that for market activities, even there has already been changes in the way before this. Rob, could you add to that? Sure. Yeah. You know, after the executive order came out, the media, I mean, everywhere, we were all ready for it. And we, we all had stories out pretty quickly. We sent a query over to China's embassy in Washington and to ask them to comment. And, you know, I have to say that it was, uh, I mean, not unexpected, but it really stopped short of a full-throated condemnation that we would sometimes hear from Beijing. So I won't read the whole thing, but it starts off with, despite China's repeated expression of deep concerns, the U.S. went ahead with new investment restrictions, full stop. China is very disappointed at this, which I just thought, I read that a few times thinking, okay, that's pretty mild. It goes on for a while to talk about how many U.S. companies are doing business in China and the total amount of bilateral investment uh, exceeding 240 billion U.S. dollars. So it gives the background and, and then it sort of it ends with this comment that says a sound environment for U.S. China economic cooperation and trade. China will closely follow the situation and firmly safeguard our rights and interests. So they're quite firm in their language, but. I was sort of searching up and down in this response for we you know expect retaliation or we will follow up with countermeasures something like that which we didn't see but that doesn't mean it's not happening it just means that I think they held back a little bit on on this response 
about the lack of retaliation so far, at least. Rob, what are your sources telling you about how Washington expects China to retaliate? Well, I guess we should turn that around. I would say that most policymakers, let's say sort of outside the, the White House, outside those who are actively trying to sort of keep the engagement going, I mean, most lawmakers don't really care what China's response was going to be. I think a lot of them have been expecting some sort of retaliation, but there's been such a buildup in terms of ensuring that some concrete measures would eventually be taken. I think that crowded out any sort of concern about how Beijing might respond. In, you know, you could sort of see it from various industry organizations or industry associations sort of saying that we understand the need to protect national security. We would just hope that the restrictions are not too great because everyone was expecting some form of retaliation from China. But, it, you know, it seems really apparent that no one was concerned enough about a reaction or countermeasures by China to hold back, to delay this any further. In fact, while the White House was developing the executive order that we saw last week, it was just a week earlier that the Senate passed its version of the sort of the must-pass National Defense Authorization Act. And within that, there's an amendment called the Outbound Investment Transparency Act, which basically calls for anyone and any U.S. investment activity in China, if it is involved in uh, they lay out six different technology sectors, and they are what you would expect, advanced semiconductors and microelectronics, AI, hypersonics, advanced laser scanning systems with dual-use applications, satellite-based communications, quantum computing and technology. Now, they went ahead and they passed that amendment, which has gone into the Senate's version of the NDAA. That will eventually have to be reconciled with the House version, but it looks like that will be in there. Anyway, the point that I'm making here is that this legislation really shows that a lot of the lawmakers, certainly in Congress, they want to power ahead with these restrictions and they don't seem to be too concerned about what China is going to do in response. So, Kinling, if I can turn back to you and talk about the reporting we've read from you on SEMP.com over the past weeks, the past months, there's a lot of well, speculation about where does Beijing, where does China's tech industry turn now if its primary foreign investor, the US, will be suspending its funds. We see yesterday the Financial Times reported that Saudi Arabia has now joined the race to buy these high-end NVIDIA chips for a supercomputer program that's being staffed almost entirely by Chinese academics. You've been reporting on the many investment deals being made between Beijing, between Hong Kong and Saudi Arabia. Can you tell us a bit more about that? How big a deal is this? Right. I guess Saudi Arabia is really in the center of uh, many diplomacy news this year. And I myself was actually in Saudi Arabia in June earlier for a business forum between Arab countries and China, but it was hosted in the capital city of Saudi Arabia. And in that business conference, um, I mean, over 3,000 people attended from China and also from the region. And what was quite surprising to me was 
the excitement um, surrounding by the possibility of deals and the prospects of economic cooperation between the region and especially, of course, the hosts, Saudi Arabia and China. And all of that positive sentiment was stirred and enhanced by um, Xi Jinping's trip to the region and to Saudi Arabia's state visit last December. And actually, ever since then, people from business groups to government visits, there have been so many more of these going on between the two countries. And of course, because China reopened from its COVID policies. The thing is, when I talked to people on the ground in Saudi Arabia, and we had a chance to do like a closed door interview with Saudi Arabia's Minister of Investment, I think one thing that's interesting to me was that because Saudi Arabia is rich, they're not a country that's looking for like lucrative deals with China just to get China's money. And also, I mean, China's economy is not looking that great right now. I'm not sure if a state companies or the Chinese government is as resourceful as before in, you know, making what it seems would be like a huge number of deals like they would in the past. But Saudi Arabia is a country that has the money and they're looking for places to invest. And China is a good place for that investment to happen because tech is exactly what Saudi Arabia needs. Saudi Arabia's crown prince, MBS, he has his own very ambitious plans for his countries. And those plans mean that they need trustworthy and high-tech companies to support those developments. Saudi Arabia's economy is very largely energy-based, so they would really need companies from the outside to support them with the tech they need to develop those plans, those development plans for the country. And China is a good partner for that because, number one, Chinese tech companies, they're facing so much pressure from the Western world. They also need an outlet for their technology and a country that Chinese investors and Chinese companies also feel safe to cooperate with. And secondly, because Chinese tech companies, I mean, yes, they're lagging very much behind the US and those cutting edge technologies. But Chinese tech companies are still very active and some of their technology are very mature as well. And to Saudi Arabia's government, Chinese tech companies have also got what they needed. And given the context of how um, Saudi Arabia's turmoil with some Western governments in the past years, it's also a good idea for them to work with China. So it's kind of like a relationship that really needed each other. And one thing that Saudi Arabia is different from China's other, I guess, really friendly partners is they're resourceful and they are on a more equal footing with China, I would say. Not like they are begging for China to come invest in them. They they need each other. Killing it's very interesting because, you know, we've done another interview we'll hear later in this podcast series looking at maybe the, the echoes of Trump's tariff war and how that pushed Chinese manufacturing companies to go across the border into Southeast Asia. Will we see a similar echo of this with China's tech companies and Saudi Arabia or the Middle East indeed? But Jasmine, what do you think about this upcoming election campaign? Yeah, well, ever since 2015, 2016 with Trump, there was a lot of anti-China rhetoric already. And since then, I guess it's kind of resonated with both sides of the political aisle. And now you've got an upcoming presidential election in 2024. So, Rob, I'm curious, what can we expect from the U.S. next? Are they going to keep escalating this U.S.-China tech war? 
I think, Jasmine, you can look at it through the lens of what we've seen most recently. That is, a lot of strong efforts on the part of the Biden administration to keep engagement with China intact. So that's why we've seen Blinken in Beijing. We've seen Janet Yellen in Beijing. It's widely expected that uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo will also be making her way to Beijing sometime soon. And there's also the executive order. Now, if we look at the executive order, it's really important to point out that while they've identified three areas in which the U.S. investment will be restricted, that is uh, semiconductors and microelectronics is one, quantum computing is another, and then they say certain artificial intelligence systems. The actual implementing rules are now opened up to this period of public comment. So they're going to be seeking comments from industry in the U.S. in addition to consulting with Congress. Obviously, we know that the tenor in Congress is quite stridently anti-China. But then also with their allies, there's the G7 and then there's the EU. So a lot could happen in the way that this executive order gets implemented. And I think there's a couple of things that the Biden administration is keeping firmly in mind as this develops. And one is that, of course, we've got the APEC Leader Summit at the end of the year that will be taking place in San Francisco. And the Biden administration does very much want the opportunity for President Biden to meet with President Xi Jinping at that meeting. So that can explain why there's been so much restraint in terms of the area that is covered by this executive order. I should also point out that this restriction is really focused on venture capital and private equity. And it is very carefully crafted. The wording is crafted so far as to not ban investment into the public uh, securities of Chinese companies. That is, you know, publicly traded shares, bonds, and things like that. So I think what we're seeing is the Biden administration with this executive order giving itself a lot of latitude for this to change as time goes ahead, as they actually develop the rules and as they implement the rules. And again, that's with a view to keeping engagement intact as we edge toward the end of the year and as we move into November when there'll be APEC. But then, of course, yes, there's the election next year. And the American political landscape is insane right now, as everyone knows, because of the indictments against the Republican frontrunner, Donald Trump. And so we should expect that China will be a huge factor in the election and the general election next year. And so on the one hand, I think there's been a lot that the Biden administration has done in order to keep these restrictions, at least at the outset, as they've articulated what is needed as the rules are developed to keep things fairly, you know, again, going back to the small yard high fence. But, you know, most analysts talking about this say there's there's a lot of room for those restrictions to become even more restrictive. Like, for example, uh, OK, so you've got semiconductors, you've got quantum computing and you've got AI. Well, most analysts sort of jump on that AI area because it's very vague. It's very amorphous. The technology at this point is so nascent that it's difficult to figure out what aspect of AI are we trying to restrict here. So it, the restrictions could end up being a lot more broad. And when you get political factors at play, that's going to put more pressure on the Biden administration to make these restrictions a bit more onerous than they perhaps appear at the moment. So, you know, if I was to hazard a guess, I would say 
they're going to tread very lightly for the rest of the year as they talk about, you know, the consultations and whatnot. But then it's quite possible that once we get into 2024, the final version of these rules might be more restrictive than what we're thinking now or more restrictive than the language would suggest right now. It sounds like there's immense challenges ahead for both Beijing and Washington, D.C. And of course, we'll be reading it all from both you, Rob Delaney and Kinling Lo in D.C. in Beijing on SAP.com. Thank you both very much for your time. Thanks, both of you. Thank you and take care. That's the update from the corridors of power in Washington and Beijing. We've got three more episodes in this series, taking you much further inside China and much further into the history of cooperation and collaboration between China and the U.S. Because it was actually four years ago, we published a podcast about a small group of Chinese university students sent to study in the U.S. under an agreement made by then-U.S. President Jimmy Carter and then-Chinese President Deng Xiaoping. 44 years later, and that agreement is due to be renewed at the end of this month. You can have a guess what the mood is on how that's working out. We've lined up some really interesting people to talk about not just the history, but what it will cost to the world if that agreement isn't renewed. But Jasmine, where are we headed next for our next episode? We're going to do that thing that is often quoted in journalism and was attributed to the Watergate investigation, but was never actually said in real life. We're going to follow the money. How is Biden's executive order going to affect the money flowing from the United States to China's tech industry? And where else is it coming from? We've got two really interesting experts shining a light and showing us what comes next in this ongoing competition between the US and China over who gets to lead the world in high-tech industries. See you then.